Welcome back to another episode of Finances. This is going to be our eighth episode, and today we are talking about year-end tax planning. On the episode today, we have Steve Sacchetta, who is the Director of Accounting and Tax at our firm. We have Mike Callahan, who's the Director of Wealth Management, and we have Ann Sacchetta, who's an Accounting Manager. And I will also say that today is the first time we are trying a remote recording session, so bear with us with the audio and maybe some of the poor quality of sound, but hopefully we'll at least still get the message across. So Steve, did you want to uh, kick us off and start start the discussion of what we should be looking at at the end of the year tax-wise? Sure. Hopefully uh, you are looking forward to the end of the year, end of 2020, and the new tax season that'll be coming up starting. We usually start our tax season somewhere around February 1st of 2021. Year-end tax planning is something we go through with clients every year. The best things to do at the end of the year is to accelerate your expenses and uh, not try to recognize or earn as much income in order to reduce the tax liability at the end of the year. Uh, People may not have as big of a problem doing that this year, especially with people losing jobs, being laid off. I've had a lot of clients call with decisions to take early retirement and therefore they're transitioning, uh, losing their salary, picking up the retirement income and want to know what their tax liabilities are going to look like for the end of the year. That tends to be one of the hardest years tax-wise for people in general, right? Is the year where they transition from working to retirement and, you know, they're so used to going their whole career where taxes are just taken out of their paycheck and they're pretty close and you know, they either get a small refund or a small balance due and everything's fine. And once they transition to retirement, I mean, it changes everything, right? Because the, the withholdings are going to be totally different. A lot of times they have to decide how much tax to have withheld. And more, most often when we see people kind of have the surprise tax bill or, you know, surprise refund, it's kind of one of those years, right? It's one of those transition years. Correct. And the other, the other thing that you just said, Steve, too, and maybe something we can discuss is, you know, people losing their jobs. A lot of people are filing for unemployment this year. And what, what do people or what should they know about unemployment income regarding taxes? Well, I've had a lot of clients call and uh, they call and say, I have collected unemployment for 13 weeks, 22 weeks, 26 weeks. And it looks like they just keep extending it. So if you've gone almost the entire year on unemployment with any, without any major withholdings taken out from your previous employment on your W-2 form, and they give you the option to select federal and state withholdings off off of your unemployment benefits, you're going to get a 1099-G form at the end of the year, G for government payment, and they'll show you what your federal withholdings tax and state withholdings tax are. You should be aware that unemployment benefits are fully taxable. So if you elected not to have that withheld and you didn't work much during the year on a W-2 form, you may have a tax liability out of pocket come the end of the year or tax season next year. Steve, typically what what do they deduct for the withholdings? I think isn't that usually like 10%? I'm concerned about those that think they've had adequate withholdings, but may not. Yeah, I'll give you a perfect example. I had a 
a younger client call. Her husband works as a municipal employee, but also does some plumbing on the side. And she worked at a medical practice as an administrative person. She got laid off, collected unemployment. He stopped doing the plumbing on the side because under COVID, people didn't want him coming in the house to do the work. So his first employment is still going to have full withholding. I determined with her, we got a download of the history of her unemployment benefits. She only had 10% withholding on the federal and 5% on the state. So the five is normal because it's a flat tax rate, but the 10 is probably going to be inadequate for their joint tax return because they're going to take his municipal wages and add it to her unemployment benefits and they probably are going to be in a 22 percent tax bracket and she'll only have 10 percent withheld on her her unemployment benefits right so at the end of the day it sounds like people have this preconceived notion that unemployment is just free money but it in, in some regards it is but it's also taxable money so just be cognizant of that, you know, if, you, if you're going forward and applying for unemployment in the months to come, just do a tax projection and, and take into consideration all of your other earnings and, and make sure that the withholding sort of matches what it needs to be. So you're not hit with the giant tax bill at the end of the year and possibly even uh, penalties and interest on top of that. So another thing about unemployment that um, I, I guess I just want to make people aware of is because I think so many people have collected and the unemployment agency is just overwhelmed. They've all, there's always those that try to commit fraud, try to get money that isn't theirs. And so I, we've had a, quite a few people that have got phone calls saying, you know, are you collecting unemployment or getting letters from the unemployment? And they are still fully employed. So I just want to make people aware if you have any inkling that somebody may have used your information to collect unemployment. You really want to report that to the fraud department of mass unemployment. Right. Otherwise, you could get a 1099G for money that you never received. Yeah. Once you report the possibility of fraud, then they will make sh they're supposed to make sure you don't get the 1099G until they've, you know, rectified it and made sure that you didn't get your mo the money. Yeah, because the only the only thing worse than paying taxes on money you earned is paying taxes on money you never even saw. So, right. good point, Ann. Real real life example. I had a client call who, she owns a small subchapter S corporation. She decided to keep herself on the books, paying herself almost in full from what she did the prior year, and she got one of those letters in the mail, which was under her maiden name, not her married name but using her social security number that there was an open claim that had collected, I think it said like $26,000 worth of benefits from Mass Division of Unemployment Assistance. So she had to file a fraudulent claim, a fraudulent report. Yeah, I haven't seen any numbers on how many there have been, but I imagine it's significant. Yeah, it's unfortunate that some people take advantage of, of that situation, but yeah, it's just to Ann's point, it's something to keep keep track of and make sure you're not paying somebody else and then going to have to pay the taxes on top of that. Um, so one of the other points that I wanted to touch on real quickly is, you know, one of the only true changes in the tax code for 2020 is 
the $300 above the line deduction. Um, Mike, I know you, you were talking about that earlier. Do you want to explain quickly what that's all about? Yeah, and I think, you know, like you say, the only kind of big changes that we've seen is, is the, the CARES Act. And part of the CARES Act was a the introduction of a $300 charitable deduction, which, you know, uh, it's called above the line, which basically means even if you don't itemize deductions, you get to take this $300 deduction anyway. On top of the standard. Um, on top of the standard. Right. And it's the only kind of catch to it is it has to be a cash donation. So it can't be clothes or goodwill or anything like that. It has to be cash. Um, cash, but otherwise, charge. yeah, exactly. Some form of cash donation to, to a uh, recognized charity. Um, but other than that, like I say, people who typically don't keep track of donations because they don't itemize this year, they might want to because those donations might be deductible on the tax return. Right. And if, you know, you were planning on making a donation to some charitable organization in the, in the near future, maybe it makes a lot more sense to make it at the end of December versus the beginning of January, because you'll at least get some tax shelter from it. So... And I guess if you have made donations, but you haven't itemized in the past, you probably haven't kept track of your receipts. And so this year, you might want to keep that with your tax information as your backup for that deduction. Good point, Ian. Another issue, I uh, got a lot of calls this year about the $1,200 stimulus checks that people were getting or not getting. The people that did not receive them there were many reasons why. First, if you didn't have direct deposit on your 2018 or 2019 tax return, then they didn't have banking information, so you didn't get a direct deposit. Secondly, if you hadn't yet filed either of those returns, you wouldn't have got a check either. Those people that did not get it, there is another bite at the apple on the 2020 tax return that you'll be filing in tax season of 21, I believe there is a checkbox that says I did receive or I did not receive my $1,200 stimulus check, and that will be added to your refund if you never got it during the 2020 year. Another, Steve, another um, situation is if you ha uh, had a child in 2020, that person or that dependent was not on your 19 tax return. So you will be able to get that additional economic impact payment for that, that new person in your family. Well, and also even if, if you didn't qualify on the 19 return, but you do qualify on the 20 because your income is much lower or something like that, you'll, you'll be able to get the stimulus payment as a, as a 2020 tax credit. Correct. You didn't qualify because you're 18 or 19. And it's not, it's not only black and white of qualified versus not qualified. They're also going to reconcile it right against your 19. So, you know, say if, say if you were one of those people in the partial phase out and instead of getting $1,200, you only got $800 because of your income. But if you bump back down your income in 20, you know, and, and you qualify for it, they'll be, they'll cut you the check for the extra 400. Correct. Yeah, exactly. I mean, ultimately it was supposed to be a 2020 payment and, and tax credit idea, they just had no information on 20. So they were using 19 to determine who they thought might be eligible. And now we have to kind of go through and reconcile who, who should have gotten it, who shouldn't have gotten it. The good news is if you got the payment, but shouldn't have gotten it based on your 2020 income, they're not going to take it back. So there's not going to be any repayment of it um, if you no longer qualify. So it'll just be people who might not have gotten it the first time that, like Steve said, having to have another bite at the apple when we do the taxes this time around. In, in addition, Mike mentioned 
about your income being over the qualified limit. You know, for instance, you sold a business, you sold a building at, you know, half a million dollars, something like that. That would bump you out from getting the $1,200 stimulus check when this year in 2020, you don't have that same transaction. That's how you would qualify now to get the $1,200 check. Uh, the other bunch of phone calls that I've been receiving is on people that have done those things, sold a home, sold a building, sold a business. They're, those people that are on social security benefits saw their Medicare premiums increased for the year and withheld out of their social security monthly benefit payments. That happens for one year. And when you then file your 2020 tax return and your income goes back to the normal level, they will correct that back down to the minimum amount that you were used to seeing out of your social security checks prior. And the tricky part with that is, correct me if I'm wrong, they actually used two years ago as tax return. So technically the 2020 premium is based on the 2018 taxes because of the, the way it falls, they, they essentially used two years ago. So to Steve's point, it only lasts a year, they'll correct it back down, but it's a lot of times it's surprising because the year in which the income was high seems so long ago and then all of a sudden you're getting hit for it on your Medicare and, and you don't really make the connection in your head between those two things. But um, just an important thing to remember is they base that on two years ago's taxes. So if you sold a business or something like that, like Steve said in 2019, 2021, you might see your Medicare pre premiums go up. Mm -hmm. And one other point that I kind of wanted to quickly circle back to, and it was something that Ann had mentioned earlier about dependents, is you should really have a discussion, you know, if there are dependents on your return who are maybe older, college age or, or otherwise, you know, should should that person still be a dependent? And I know you, you were talking about that a little bit. What What do you basically suggest to people have the discussion because that we have so many clients whose children do their own returns. They do not check the box that says you are claimed as a dependent on your parents' return. And then when the parents file their return, their returns get rejected because the dependent they have has already been taken on another return. Um, and it leads to a lot of, lot of issues. Right. Yeah. yeah, it definitely causes a lot of confusion. And then the parents have to file an amended return, or it's basically whoever gets to the gets to the IRS first and files their return is kind of is what it is. Same thing can happen with the kid too. If the parents file them as dependent, they they don't check the box saying they were uh, taken as a dependent, their their return will get rejected as well. So just have that. You know, if you're in that situation, have that discussion whether or not you're going to be claimed as a dependent on another person's return. And essentially, what's the metric for that, Mike? It's if you support half of your expenses, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I don't want to say it's really straightforward because there's a little bit of thought involved, but I mean, it's essentially whoever paid more than 50% of the support for that person. So if you have a, a child who's, you know, in college under the age of 26 and they're essentially supporting themselves, well, then they're their own dependent. If you're still paying for all of their expenses, then they're your dependent. So, I mean, it, it really just comes down to who's who's supporting the person and that's who should claim the dependency on the tax return. You know, the, the IRS position is not that it should be claimed by whoever gets the most money back. <laughs> so, right. Just to extrapolate that a little bit further, I had a case this year in which a couple got divorced back in 16. For 17, 18 and 
we were preparing their 19 return. Um, the same accountant prepared husband and ex-wife's tax return, and neither one of them claimed the child or the tuition credit as a dependent. Mm -hmm. um, and again, claiming the dependency of the child is what triggers who claims the tuition credit, which can be upwards of $2,500. Yeah, I mean, th that story just goes to show, you know, why we wanted to do this podcast and sort of hint to people that tax isn't a you know, let it happen and, and figure it out afterwards game. It really should be a planning game and trying to get all the pieces in place. So when you do file your tax return, it's basically just reconciling the plan that, that you laid out. If you do it correctly, there shouldn't be any surprises at the end of the year. You should know exactly what you're getting back or what you may owe or, you know, if it's, it's a zero sum game. I guess the only other big topic that I wanted to discuss, because I know we're getting a little short on time here, is the idea of tax loss harvesting and how, from an investment standpoint, that could sort of benefit your your tax game. So, Mike, I don't know if you quickly wanted to discuss maybe what we did with some of our clients earlier this year to sort of generate some of those losses. Yeah, like I said, I mean, it's, it's tax loss harvesting is one of those things that's usually a year-end planning idea that people have. This year, it was kind of a, a March idea right. in the sense that essentially all it is is if you have an investment that has a loss on it, you can sell that investment and buy something else. You can't buy the same thing back, but if you buy something else with the money, you have a, a loss on that original position that you can use to deduct on your taxes, right? You can either offset other capital gains or you can offset ordinary income up to $3,000 a year until you use it up. Um, so it helps you for taxes. So what we kind of did for a lot of our clients in March is obviously when the stock market was down, we sold you know, a few positions, bought something similar that we thought had the same potential for rebound, but it wasn't the same investment. And now not only did they get the recovery when the market recovered, but when we do their taxes this year, they're going to have a bit of a loss to deduct on the tax return. And, you know, that'll save them some additional money on the taxes. Right. So um, they get the so tax like benefit from it as well, not actually having the loss because they're going to get the rebound. So in this example, we basically sold the S&P mutual fund for an S&P ETF. And because they're different investment vehicles, it's not considered a wash sale. Therefore, you can get the loss. But because we executed the trades the, the very same day, from a from a um, gain loss standpoint, you know, unrealized gain loss, they basically made up all of the the run up. Yeah, I mean, essentially, return wise, clients are in the same position, but when we do the taxes, they'll get a little bit of benefit from the from the tax savings. And like I said, I mean, it's it's not just something that can be done, you know, this year or in any specific year. You can do it anytime you want. It really is just it only works when there are losses. And in the past ten years, the market just has kept going up. So it it tends to be something you look at when you have these big pullbacks like we had in March, because that's when there are losses to harvest, essentially. So again, you know, going into year end, my guess is there's probably not a whole lot of losses in people's portfolios to, to take, but if there is, it's something to think about. So, but like I say, going forward, just something to keep in the back of your mind. Yeah, definitely. And just to clarify that you're talking about capital gains and losses. So capital transactions and most of what you're, you're harvesting losses for are to offset other capital gains that you have, meaning those losses that you're talking about are only usable against capital gains or up to $3,000 worth of losses if you don't have any additional capital gains. 
Right. So to Steve's point, you know, for an example, say you made $100,000 this year and you realize $50,000 of capital loss, it's not like your adjusted gross income is going to go down to $50,000. Um, you know, it's still, you're only basically going to go down to 97000 and then the rest of it's that loss position that you can carry forward and use against future gains. You wouldn't believe how many clients I've had call and say, yeah, sure, I didn't withhold taxes on that $40,000 worth of unemployment that I earned, but I, I got a $40,000 loss, so I'll offset one against right. the other. And, and that doesn't work that way. And that's kind of why, you know, for a lot of our clients, and I think why the clients enjoy working with us is because for well, our wealth management side, the investment team and the accounting team is all under one roof. So we, you know, the left hand knows what the right is doing. And that's so important because when you get those disjointed advisors or you do one item on your own and the other item is professionally managed, you, you create these taxable situations where there are huge surprises at the end of the year. Um, but like I said, the, the idea of tax planning makes it so there are no surprises and you know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, and even adding on to that, the fact that just you can add returns to the portfolio over time with just, you know, the, the, the tax impact. Right. And just knowing what the tax rules are and using them to your advantage as opposed to, like Matt said, just letting it happen and sorting it out later. Right. Well, thank you, all three of you, for, for joining us virtually here. Hopefully for everybody listening, the audio quality wasn't too, too bad. And, you know, we, we only really scratched the surface with some of these things here. So if you're interested in more tax planning, definitely reach out to us and we can talk about some other strategies that you can utilize but for now, we will leave you until the next one. Thanks. Financers is produced and edited by Sachetta and Callahan, LLC. All disclosures are posted to our website at sachetta.com forward slash financers. S-A-C-H-E-T-T-A dot com forward slash F-I-N-E-A-N-S-W-E-R-S. Thanks for listening.